I'm Damian Bulwa, Director of News at The Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, our guest is San Francisco's District Attorney, Chesa Boudin, who's trying to fight off an effort to recall him from office this coming Tuesday. The election is a big moment. It's a collision between powerful forces, a nationwide criminal justice reform movement, a backlash warning of rising crime, and a city that has struggled with chronic problems like homelessness, burglaries, and drug overdoses. Boudin says he's delivering on his promise to prioritize treatment of offenders over incarceration. His opponents say criminals exploit his leniency. In my interview with Boudin, recorded Wednesday, I ask him to respond to his critics and to weigh in on the tension over reform nationally. I ask him why he thinks his political life is in danger, not only in terms of his policies, but how he communicates with the public. And I ask him what he'll do next if he loses at the ballot box. Here's my conversation with Chase Boudin. Chase Boudin, thanks for joining us on Fifth and Mission. Damien, great to be with you and uh, wish we could be doing this in person, but happy to see you over a Zoom connection and be able to talk uh, about all the issues that are important to San Francisco. Yeah, in person would be great, but thanks for coming on. Next week, voters will decide whether you will remain San Francisco's top prosecutor. As you're on the campaign trail here going down to the last days, what are the two or three things that you are trying to tell voters to make your case? You know, the most important thing is for voters to recognize that everybody who they trust, who's done the research, who's dug in to look at the issues at my record, um, is saying reject the recall, vote no on Proposition H. That's true whether it's the Democratic Party, the Green Party, and the Libertarian Party. It's true whether you look at the newspapers and editorial boards across the city, the Chronicle, the Examiner, Bay Area Reporter, Chinese Language, Tsingtao, and many, many more, Bayview, Bay Guardian, and others. Um, and it's also true if you look at Democratic clubs like the uh, San Francisco Democratic Party, the Bernal Heights Democratic Club, the Latinx Democratic Club, or if you look at organized labor, the Labor Council, the California Nurses, the San Francisco Public School Teachers and our janitors, all those groups and many, many more are urging voters to reject the recall. Those are folks that see the work we're doing, that uh, have a history of working with the DA's office and appreciate both the challenges and the progress that we've made in the face of really historically difficult two years in office. But Chase, I got to imagine some of these conversations are people who are who are telling you openly that they're going to vote for the recall. I mean, you're talking to individual voters. What are those conversations like? Well, it's interesting. You know, there's a few people who come up to me uh, earlier today. I was in uh, North Beach and somebody said they were supporting the recall. And I said, I'd love to hear why. What, what is it that you think is going to change? What policies has the recall suggested they're going to advance if they prevail? And he, he didn't have an answer. Um, and in fact, that's how that conversation usually goes, because the folks who've spent now about seven million dollars, largely Republican stock donations to the recall, have not advanced a single policy platform, a candidate, or a vision for how to make San Francisco safer. Instead, they've spent their money, their time, used their soapbox that they've purchased to attack me and my work without in any way suggesting what could be done to improve the very serious challenges that we face as a city. It's scapegoating, and that undermines the kind of nuanced policy conversations that smart San Francisco voters want us to be having. Okay, a lot of the criticism, as you know, it does seem to boil down to this one main thing, and that is that you aren't tough enough on crime. You've responded by challenging the definition, that what is the traditional definition of toughness, saying it can't just be convictions, jail time, prison time. 
What's been so hard about making that case in, in San Francisco, a place where uh, you would think that people would understand that case? Well, it, absolutely. And people do when they look at the facts. The challenges were confronting a page straight out of the National Republican playbook. I mean, you look at what Donald Trump did at the national level, and basically he lied over and over and over again. But he did it loud enough and consistently enough and got enough other people and places to repeat those lies that people started doubting things like vaccines, uh, among many, many other things that are basic and incontrovertible science. We have the same problem here in San Francisco with the false information being spewed by this recall campaign. It's why the San Francisco uh, Chronicle and the Examiner and their editorials pointed out that the recall is really short on data and facts. They're long on anecdotes and spin. All right. I, I want to follow up on that. We, we did ask readers to weigh in for this podcast. I want to read you one statement. You've probably heard this before. This person said, quote, he seems to just want to dismiss us all, meaning your critics, as Republicans. His arrogance and unwillingness to try and understand the perspective of middle class, moderate San Franciscans has only augmented our desire to oust him. How would you respond to that? Well, I'm sorry that that's your impression. I mean, look, I'm working as hard as I can every day to make the city safer for, for all of us. And uh, I, I can't blame people like uh, that, uh, that, that listener for being frustrated. I mean, the last two years have presented us individually and collectively with challenges and changes we never could have anticipated. I certainly never expected to have to try and lead my office and uh, prosecute cases um, in the midst of a global pandemic. And I know it's had a devastating effect on homeowners, on small business owners, on, on families with school-aged children, on all of us. So that, that, that frustration is very real, and, and I empathize with it. I share it, in fact. Uh, I've wanted to do so many things in this job that I haven't been able to do because of the pandemic. Um, what's, what's unfortunate is that the anxiety and the fear around those changes has been directed at me and my office, has been scapegoated. Uh, the examiner said it really well in their endorsement. The recall will not change any of the real problems. It will not solve any of the real challenges that we as a city face and that folks like uh, that listener are, are absolutely correct to be upset about. And yet the recall has done an effective job for some folks of making them think that I am responsible for all of the ills in this city, the homelessness, drug addiction, poverty, auto burglaries, you name it. Problems that if we're honest and if we take a moment to reflect, we know predated my tenure and will probably still be here no matter who the next district attorney is five or 10 years from now. Okay. I want to get into some of that stuff. We'll get into it a little later, but let's talk about some of the larger forces here. You came into office amid really powerful movements. There seemed to be great momentum for progressive prosecutors like yourself and for criminal justice reform in general. And then somewhere along the way, uh, you, you probably agree, maybe you don't, but a lot of that energy seemed to evaporate in the face of fear of crime. Uh, from your perspective, what happened? Did people never really get invested or care about trying reform in the first place? Or, or is there some other reason that this kind of lost momentum? I think both things are true, Damien. I mean, I, I agree to a certain extent. I, I certainly think that, um, you know, there was a broad-based national movement, and that movement is, is what got me elected in 2019, a movement committed to criminal justice reform as a path to safer, stronger communities. Um, I also think that, you know, what we're seeing across the country is 
uh, and this predates in many ways the pandemic, but it's it's certainly accelerated. We're seeing police unions and their Republican allies attack progressive prosecutors, folks committed to reform, whether it be in Philadelphia or Chicago or Los Angeles or here in San Francisco. And it's a really um, it's a really standard playbook. They attack us. They make sure everybody knows our name and associates us with crime in a way that never happens in you know, more traditional, quote unquote, tough on crime jurisdictions. And then they try to strip us of our jurisdiction over certain categories of cases. They try to beat us at the polls. And when that doesn't work, they try to recall us. They're doing it all across the country. And, and the interesting thing about it is it's not working. Larry Krasner won re-election in Philadelphia um, by more than double digits. Kim Fox in Chicago, same thing. And what, what we're seeing is because they can't win in direct head-to-head elections, when they actually put forward a candidate and a platform and a vision for specific policies, what they're doing instead is trying to create elections like this one where nobody's asking them who is going to replace District Attorney Boudin, what policies are you going to do? Are you going to continue the Worker Protection Unit, the Innocence Commission? Are you going to continue the policy of ending money bail and of refusing to prosecute juveniles as adults? Policies that are wildly popular in a place like San Francisco, where our voters understand that criminal justice reform is a path to safer and more just and equitable communities. And so what we see is the the Republican billionaires who are bankrolling this recall effort are hiring folks as spokespeople who say, we're criminal justice reformers, we're progressive prosecutors, without ever giving a single concrete example of a policy or a platform that is indeed reform-oriented or that's popular with voters. Instead, they focus on attacks. All right. You contend that that they're not winning in all of these places, but in San Francisco, there's now a lot of focus on this race because your supporters are worried that that you may lose, that you may be ousted from office. The polls are are uh, are showing that that you are in some trouble here. What is it about San Francisco? Is this a referendum on whether San Francisco is progressive? Is there something about your message, or is there something that you have failed to do that's put you at stake here of perhaps losing office? Yeah, I've certainly made mistakes, Damien. Um, it, it's been a steep learning curve since day one for me. I'd never been in elected office before. Uh, I'd never been a prosecutor before. Uh, as you know, I, I came from the public defender's office, and that brought uh, a lot of insight. I have lived experience visiting my own parents in prison for four decades and trying dozens of cases in front of San Francisco juries. Um, and nevertheless, it was a steep learning curve. It was going to be, and, and I knew that coming in and talked about it very openly. What I never predicted or anticipated was a COVID pandemic and two separate recall attempts um, in my first two years in office. And so uh, those obstacles, those challenges were, were unanticipated and have made the job a lot harder. I also knew that it was gonna take more than a year or two to fix the really deeply entrenched and long-standing failures of this country and this city's approach to criminal justice. And I mean, look, when I took office, um, more than two-thirds of people getting released from state prison across California were rearrested within a couple of years. It was the definition of a revolving door. And I inherited more than 5,000 cases on day one. 20% of those cases were two years or more old. We knew it was going to take time to clear that backlog, to build structures that could actually convert every arrest into an opportunity for intervention and transforming lives away from crime in ways that the status quo, so-called tough on crime prosecutors have never, ever managed to do. But still, I I guess I want to ask you, I mean, what happened? I mean, if you were to 
if you were in discussion with, with some other prosecutors around the country and they were asking about what happened in San Francisco, is there something you would say like, hey, don't step into this trap or don't do this because this this didn't connect at all? Absolutely. Um, you know, among many other things we could talk about, I think one issue is that um, two months after I took office, I had to start running my office and, and engaging with our community remotely, as we all did. And that meant it was a lot harder to, to really be in community, to partner with community leaders and groups that I didn't already have relationships with. If they weren't on my formal schedule uh, over Zoom, there was no opportunity for the kind of informal connections and networking and relationship building, trust building, that are such an important part of this job, especially for someone like me who was not an insider uh, in City Hall or the, the city family, as they call it, but was elected in large part precisely because I was an outsider and represented change. Um, and so I didn't have that opportunity in my first year to, to build trust and relationships. And I think one of the things that stemmed from that was I kept looking every day, I still do, at the data. I want to see what the crime trends are. I want to allocate resources within my team and push for resources within all the different agencies that are joint stakeholders in public safety, the courts and the, the police department, of course, the sheriff's department, probation, parole, so many other agencies that we work with every day on issues of public safety. So I've been looking at the data. And it turns out that because of the dramatic ways in which crime trends have changed during the pandemic, not just in San Francisco, but across the country, there's a real disconnect between what people are feeling and experience in their neighborhoods, in, in their homes, and what the data is showing us. And I think it took me and, and my office uh, longer than it should have to realize that there was that disconnect and to meet voters and residents of San Francisco where they were at and to really connect with what they were experiencing and feeling because we were relegated to Zoom. Um, and so we kept looking at big picture data in ways that wasn't really that useful or helpful. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I have a job that requires me both to lead based on data and evidence-based practices and also to represent the feelings and the needs of all of our diverse communities. And that means I've got to meet voters where they're at, and I've got to represent the feelings that they have, and I've got to make sure that they are feeling safer every single day that passes. All right. Now, you know that we've reported here at The Chronicle that crime is a little bit down in the last two years, uh, the time you've been in office. A lot of people have criticized us for that, but those are the numbers. Crime is a little bit down. They vary by crime type. But, Chase, I mean, boring in on that, San Francisco does have very high rates of property crime and of drug overdoses compared to almost anywhere in the country. And those issues have frustrated a lot of people. Some people's view is that San Francisco is sort of low risk for consequences and that people cycle in and out of jail. Something's obviously not working. So how do we change things or do we have to live with these kind of chronic problems that we see in San Francisco? Well, I don't think we should have to live with them at all. I share our residents' frustration, uh, our visitors, our tourists, our small businesses who are sick and tired of uh, open-air drug use and overdoses that are taking lives, uh, sick and tired of uh, constant car break-ins and shoplifting. And, and I agree with many people who say there are no consequences, but we need to understand why that is if we're going to change it. And it's also important to look at the trends in the data. In the two and a half years that I've been in office, compared to the two and a half years prior to my administration, there have been 28,149 fewer reported crimes. That's a 19% decline in property crime 
or nonviolent crime. It's a 22% decline in violent crime. So I, I want to take issue a little bit with your framing, Damien, when you say crime is down a little bit. Having a 22% decrease in violent crime over a two and a half year period is not a small de- decrease. It's a massive historic decrease. A 19% decline in nonviolent crime is a massive historic decline. But we know that some categories of crime are up significantly. We know that the neighborhoods where crimes are committed have changed and that the kinds of people who are being victimized are very different. It's no longer tourists with rental cars as often, and it's homeowners or small business owners. Those changes are real, and we need to recognize them for what they are, and we also need to understand what the data is showing us. Now, I'd love to take credit for those uh, declines in crime rates. But we all know that the COVID pandemic dramatically changed our daily lives. And it also meant that instead of breaking into cars all the time in 2020 and early 2021, folks started breaking into garages and businesses. And that meant we had different victims. And if you're a victim of crime, if you've been a victim in the last year or two, it doesn't matter much to you what the statistics show. Crime for you is up 100%. And so we've got to do a better job holding people who commit crimes accountable. And that means we need to understand what accountability looks like. The first step in any criminal prosecution is effective police investigation and arrest. We cannot prosecute in this office, no matter who the district attorney is, we cannot prosecute people who commit crimes, whether shoplifting or murder, until and unless the police investigate and successfully arrest the perpetrator of the crime. Now, in in San Francisco right now, just to take auto burglaries as one example, According to the police department, they're only solving about 1% of reported car break-ins. Now, I'm not saying that to criticize the police. I'm saying it because if we're serious about deterrence, instead of focusing on tougher consequences for that 1% who do get arrested, we should be focusing on increasing the rate at which police are able to solve these crimes. The National Institute for Justice published a report that evaluates all the literature and research out there and looks at what the most effective deterrents to crime are. And it's not the death penalty. It's not prosecuting kids as adults. It's not ratcheting up tough on crime sentencing laws. The single most effective deterrent to crime, and this is no surprise, it's increasing likelihood of arrest. It is true that in San Francisco, people who commit auto burglaries are very unlikely to face any consequences. But that reality has nothing to do with who the district attorney is or what our policies are in this office and everything to do with the fact that those are crimes of opportunity that police are only able to solve in 1% of reported instances. We've got to change that. So Chase, what do you say to people who, who talk about people cycling in and out of jail that say that in a lot of cases, people that have been arrested for a crime that maybe is a, uh, becomes more high profile, had a, had a history um, and had got some breaks in the, in the system in San Francisco. That seems to be a theme of what a lot of your critics are saying. How do you respond? It's a defining feature of the failed approach to criminal justice. Uh, they're trying to pin that on me, but in reality, it's exactly the system that I was elected to change. And I never thought I'd be able to do it by snapping my fingers overnight. Uh, Let's look at the data and what the data shows us. Let's just be really honest. We have a problem in San Francisco, in California, and in the United States with what criminologists call recidivism or re-arrest for people who have been incarcerated. It's not in any way unique to San Francisco, and it hasn't gotten worse under my administration, despite the police union talking points. In the two years before I was elected, 
um, a, a report that came out uh, about a year ago showed that uh, more than half of people arrested in San Francisco and released pending trial were rearrested while their case was still pending. That was before I took office. That was why voters elected me, because they were sick and tired of people talking tough, but doing things that failed completely to break the cycle of crime and victimization, that failed entirely to address root causes of crime. And so what I've done as district attorney is I've expanded programs that data and evidence show us are more likely than a random number of days in jail or a random number of years in prison to reduce future crime, to prevent future victims. That's exactly what I promised voters I would do. And it's what we are doing. Nobody expected that it was going to solve all of the system's problems overnight. And anybody who's paying close attention knows that these challenges are far worse in cities like Oakland and Sacramento with supposedly tough on crime prosecutors. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. All right. I want to stay on police for a minute. You talked a lot about police solving a small percentage of crimes. In fact, statistics show that these clearance rates are lower than ever. They've been going down during um, your tenure. The Chronicle's columnist, Heather Knight, who you know, has has been pretty tough on you in her columns, but she's also reported a number of instances in which police officers have seemingly stood around and done nothing as crimes are committed in front of them. Do you think that that this reflects the way police feel about your office? Do you think the police are undermining you on purpose? Certainly the police union is and has been. It's not a surprise. I mean, voters in San Francisco remember in October of 2019 when the police union spent more than $700,000 attacking me, spreading lies. Um, So certainly the police union since day one has been making efforts to undermine me. What, What about officers on the streets? No, but we need to recognize that they have a difficult job and it's only gotten harder during the pandemic. I mean, take for a moment a, a crime committed by somebody wearing a mask. Uh, you may have video footage, but it's very difficult for police to identify uh, a particular suspect when everybody is wearing masks. There are real concrete challenges. I mean, the chief of police and the mayor called for defunding the police uh, after the murder of George Floyd. And that obviously has an impact on morale. Um, notwithstanding that, in fact, the police department now has the biggest budget it's ever had. But it's been difficult for them. Many officers refuse to get vaccines, and, and now they're short-staffed as a result. Uh, there are real challenges that have nothing to do with me or my administration. And it's also important to remember that if we go back to, say, 2019, the year before the pandemic, the year before I took office, you know, it's not as though police were able to solve uh, most crimes back then. I mean, you look at uh, motor vehicle thefts. Police were solving about eight and a half percent of reported um, motor vehicle thefts. You look at uh, shoplifting and auto burglaries, and police were solving around three percent. So uh, this is not a new problem in San Francisco. And, and I also want to give credit where credit's due. Look, uh, one thing that I know Chief Scott and I agree on is that we have to prioritize serious and violent crimes. And police in San Francisco do a far better job than police in many other cities across the country of solving homicides. Now, homicides are the cases that have the most serious consequences for victims. People are dead. A family is torn apart, irreparable harm. They also have the most serious consequences for the people that we prosecute. We need to get it right. We need to make sure that we're convicting people who are truly guilty of murder or homicide charges when we file them. 
And so I'm really proud that as I promised voters I would do, we are trying more homicide cases than ever before in the history uh, of, of the modern San Francisco court system. Right now, as we speak, about half of our trial courtrooms are prosecuting homicide cases. In 2018 and 2019, more than two thirds of trials were misdemeanors. It's the opposite. We, we went from prioritizing the least serious cases to prioritizing the most serious cases. That's exactly what I promised voters I would do. It's how we should be allocating resources. And anybody who pretends that we're not being tough on homicides should come watch any one of our trials right now. Come down to the Hall of Justice. I invite you and I encourage you. All right. Let's talk about one of the most high profile homicide cases. That's the killing of Visha Ratanapakti, January 2021. It helped launch the National Stop AAPI hate campaign. It was on the heels of increased racism against Asians across the country during the pandemic. Visha was violently pushed to his death while out on a walk. And in an interview with the New York Times about a month later, Chasey, you said that the defendant in that case, quote, was in some sort of temper tantrum, end quote. Many Asian voters have been vocal in the recall campaign against you. Do you have any regrets about that statement? Well, certainly it was taken out of context, as you just did, Damon. If you read the full article, um, it's quite clear that I was not referring in any way, shape or form to the actual murder itself when I when I talked about that. The reporter was asking me why we couldn't charge a hate crime in the case. And I was explaining to him that police had made an arrest and presented the case to us as murder and elder abuse. And that's exactly the charges that we filed. Um, I was also explaining to him the context. And What's really important to understand about any uh, potential hate crime case is that we are required by law to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the specific motivation for why a crime was committed. If it's a robbery, if it's a murder, we have to prove that the victim was targeted because of a specific protected identity. And I was explaining to that reporter that this horrific and tragic crime that we are prosecuting as a murder, for which the defendant, who had no criminal history in San Francisco prior to this heinous act is sitting in the county jail right now as we speak. Um, We we didn't have any evidence of what motivated the crime. And and the reporter was asking me, well, what happened prior to the actual murder? And I said, we don't really know. We know he was stopped uh, many hours earlier by the police. They didn't arrest him. They issued a citation. And we know that video footage shows him doing what appears to be attacking a car prior to the murder. Um, and I don't know how to explain that behavior. We don't have proof beyond a reasonable doubt of what motivated this heinous crime. We can't even prove to a jury that the defendant knew he was attacking and killing someone who was Asian. Now, of course, the family in this case is devastated. They're outraged. Their beloved, cherished grandfather was snatched away from them in a violent, unprovoked, and unacceptable criminal act. I share their outrage. Everybody in our community should be outraged. But it is profoundly troubling that the Republican billionaires financing this recall are exploiting the pain of families suffering from these kinds of crimes and suggesting in ways that are entirely dishonest and devoid of facts that a different district attorney could have prevented this crime or could have done anything different in the way it's being prosecuted. We have excellent lawyers on the case. We have charged the most serious crime on the books. The defendant is facing a possible life sentence, even though he had never been arrested in San Francisco prior to this arrest. No opportunity under my administration whatsoever to intervene, 
or to have prevented this heinous crime. I want to ask you about another sensitive issue people have been discussing. That is your office's practice of charging undocumented defendants who are accused of drug dealing with a charge of accessory after the fact. In legal circles, people know that that is a charge that can protect defendants from deportation. And San Francisco is a sanctuary city. The San Francisco Standard, our colleagues over there, first reported the practice. And some critics say it allows drug dealers to return to the streets amid an overdose crisis. Can you describe how this practice serves the goals of the city's sanctuary laws, which were created long ago to make sure immigrants feel comfortable accessing city services? Sure thing, Damien. But the, the first thing that's really important is, and I just want to correct one uh, slight misstatement in the way you framed the question. We charge drug sales and possession for sale uh, exactly as that, as drug sales or possession for sale. In other words, um, that accessory charge you mentioned is not how these cases are charged. It is how some of the cases, many of them, settle during plea negotiations. And that is not a policy of mine. It's not a departure from my predecessor. What's frustrating is the way in which the folks in the recall campaign and some of your colleagues in the media have frankly distorted and lied to their readers about what the facts are. Are you saying you don't have a choice in those cases? It, it is a choice, isn't it, to to protect these folks from deportation? What I'm, what I'm saying is, is something slightly different than that. Not that we don't have a choice. I'm saying it is first, a policy that predates me and my administration. In fact, some of these same people criticizing me, like Brooke Jenkins, themselves regularly resolved drug sale cases for accessory convictions. Why? Because state law requires, not just San Francisco Sanctuary City, but because California state law requires all district attorneys to consider and factor in immigration consequences and take steps to avoid collateral consequences for non-citizens when we negotiate plea deals. And I want to be clear, 99% of criminal cases across the country resolve for guilty pleas, not going to trial. That is the norm, not under my administration, not in San Francisco, but across the country. And when cases are being negotiated for plea deals, if prosecutors know anywhere in the state of California that the person they are prosecuting is undocumented or is a non-citizen, we are required to consider immigration consequences and take steps where possible to mitigate or avoid punishing someone who is not a citizen twice over, once for the crime and once because of where they were born. Okay, slightly more global question. I mean, in terms of things like sanctuary diversion programs, which are, are used a lot in your office, we've reported on it for a number of factors, including um, your approach, but also the pandemic and, and state law changes. Are you doing enough to to give a message to voters that these are the positive things that that you're doing? Are you leaning enough into those uh, those areas that you're pushing? It sometimes feels like you're now trying to sort of straddle um, tough talk with still the reform talk that you came into the race with. Are you doing enough to just lean into those things that you promised? Well, I think we are. I mean, if you look at the numbers, um, we've had a I don't mean I don't mean in, in practice, I mean in message. Oh, well, it's tough, Damon. You know, we pitched the Chronicle on a success story from one of our diversion programs, but you all told us that uh, you couldn't run it. I, I don't know why or where that came from. We'd love it if you all would publish more stories about really the, the hundreds of successes from our diversion programs. But, you know, a lot of editors have told me off the record that what, what gets clicks is attacks on me and criticisms of my office or high profile examples of uh, so-called repeat offenders. And, and they just aren't as interested in stories of 
lives being saved by diversion programs, by drug treatment, or or by uh, mental health care, uh, even though that is far more common, uh, the outcome from these diversion programs. But I guess it just doesn't drive traffic to websites. And so you all aren't covering it as much as, as we'd like. And if you are interested in covering it, we've got dozens of stories we'd love to share with you. Uh, you know, right before I took office, the state of California passed a law, primary caregiver diversion, based on a recognition that we can prevent crime. We can make our community safer when we provide opportunities for parents to learn parenting skills and to be at home supporting their family rather than being in jails or racking up convictions that prevent them from getting jobs. Um, we've got a really, really high success rate from our primary caregiver diversion program. I'm proud that San Francisco was the first county in the state to implement that new state law signed by the governor. And we've got tons of success stories of families that were kept together, of cycles of intergenerational incarceration that I witnessed myself during all 40 years I visited my father in prison, that we're disrupting those cycles here in San Francisco. And I would love it, Damien, if you and other reporters would be willing to cover those kinds of success stories instead of simply focusing on the kind of fear-mongering that so often drives headlines and, and clickbait media coverage. Okay. For the record, I, I don't know about the story you're talking about. We are interested. Interested Great. In it. You, have, it. you have my email. Um, okay, Chase, if you are to be recalled by voters on Tuesday, what's next for you? Damien, you know, I'm a, a big fan of the San Francisco Giants and grew up playing baseball. And there's an old saying my, uh, my Pee Wee League coach used to say to us as kids when we were learning to play baseball, keep your eye on the ball. Oh, I thought you were going to say you were going to go out for the Giants. They could use you. They could use you <laughs> It'd be like Michael Jordan switching careers, uh, you know, in the middle, right? Basketball, baseball. You know, the, the reality is we're going to win this race because San Francisco voters are smart because everybody who voters trusts is urging them to reject the recall. And as voters start paying closer attention to the issues, to the facts, to the endorsements, uh, everywhere we go, we're feeling the energy and the momentum. More and more people are telling us in the community that they've uh, mailed in their ballots, that they're voting no on H. Uh, and I'm really focused on continuing to do the job I was elected to do. We have a lot of work ahead of us, and we're going to do it better together. Okay, a final question for you. How are you coping with all of this? What is it like? You're fighting for your job next week. You're juggling new parenthood, Chesa. You recently lost your mother. You've talked about her as being a major influence in your criminal justice work. What is it like? How are you doing? You know, Damien, I wake up every day um, just feeling tremendously lucky that um, I've got a healthy son. He's nine months old. He's got his first tooth poking through. He loves to eat berries um, and he laughs at anything or nothing. Um, I, I couldn't be more fortunate uh, than to have a son like that um, in my life and, and to keep me focused on the things that matter to me, to my community and to all of us here in San Francisco as we think about our future and ways to build a safer, stronger city. Uh, and, and I'm also tremendously lucky to wake up doing a job that I love of fighting to implement evidence-based policies that advance criminal justice reform and, and racial justice and make our communities the kind of vibrant, safe places that I want to raise my son in, that all of us deserve to live in. I knew it wasn't going to be an easy job. Of course, I wish that the two recalls I've faced and the global pandemic that shut down the courts hadn't happened. I wish we'd had more time and energy to really focus on doing the work that San Francisco needs to get done around public safety. Um, and I can't wait to get back to that work um, as soon as this recall is behind us. Chase Boudin, thank you. Thank you, Damien. Great to speak with you. 
thanks to my guest today, San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. This episode was produced by Cecilia Lay and edited by King Kaufman. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.